Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. And in this one, the Rockets welcome back James Harden. Yeah, and they went toe-to-toe with the defending champs. We'll look at their week, hold our nose as we break down a typical Texan Sunday and discuss their latest bizarre roster move. Plus, we mourn the loss of a giant figure in Texas football. Joining me is my co-host and regular sidekick, fellow H-Town sports junkie and veteran journalist, Stephen Kerr. And Stephen, I think it was a gold 10, and I'm not happy about it. It was gold 10, man. Well, you aren't alone, because Kelvin Sampson sure did. And uh, there were a couple of Cougars players that had to be almost held back because they were so furious. And, you know, Robert, I always hate to see games in like that where the officials basically determine the game. And sometimes it can't be helped. You know, even the Alabama coach said that if, you know, if it if he'd been in their shoes, then he would have thought it was goaltending too. So it's just one of those unfortunate things. It was certainly a great game. You know, it was, it was not for the faint of heart. Houston comes up just short, you know, in Alabama, they, they beat Gonzaga last week is ranked number five. So they're, they're knocking off, you know, a couple of uh, final four teams from last year. So they're no slouch, but Man, what a disappointing way to lose a game, though, for the Cougars. Finally, something good in sports is happening at Alabama. That's great to see, uh, Stephen. Sarcasm, sarcasm, yeah, sarcasm. Yeah, certainly. The, the football team is, yeah, yeah. What, another Heisman Trophy winner? That's two in a row for them. I've lost count of how many championships they've won. Now the basketball team's getting good. Oh, boy. Well, maybe the Cougars can rematch them somewhere down the line and pay them back. Stephen, if you're going to have instant replay in basketball, then you have to have instant replay on the last play in the last second of the game. What is the point of having instant replay if you can't take a look at something like that? There's nothing going on after that. It does not slow down the game because it's the last play of the game. Well, it's funny you mentioned that, Robert. I thought the very same thing when I saw what happened. And, you know, in football, they review every score. And obviously in basketball, you can't do that. But yeah, there's got to be some kind of thing if it's at the end of a game, especially when it's going to determine the outcome of a game, which that shot certainly did. Yeah, that's something I think they need to address because, you know, and of course, if it had gone the Cougars way, you and I probably wouldn't be talking like that. But I guarantee you somebody else would. So, yeah, that's something I think you have to take a look at. But you know how things are done in the NCAA. You and I probably won't be alive by the time that happens, if it ever happens. And of course, I am starting with the Cougars' loss Saturday night because, hey, that was no question the biggest event in Houston sports this week. Two top 15 teams, Bama and UH, with Memphis struggling, Stephen, this might have been their most marquee game until the tournament. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, they're, they're still a long way to go, and the Cougars only have two losses, but Boy, what a big win that would have been against Alabama if they'd been able to pull that off. And they certainly had themselves in a position to do that. Literally had the ball in the last second, just like the game they lost earlier this year to Wisconsin. So two tough losses, and those were maybe their two biggest ones on the schedule as far as opponents go. So it's a big deal between the goal 10 no call and Alabama's parade to the foul line in the first half. It's hard to be mad at the Cougs and how they played. But man, it just hurts. Yeah. I mean, a loss is a loss. It doesn't matter how it is. It, it's in the standings. Still amounts to the same thing. But there's still a lot of season left, Robert. And, I, you know, I still think the Cougars are trying to find themselves with some of these new guys. And that by the end, they could still have a chance to make some waves and, 
you know, Sweet 16, maybe even a Final Four. It's a bit, maybe a bit, a bit ambitious right now. But certainly think Kelvin Sampson is the kind of coach that can get a team in shape for that. There's still, you know, probably a top 20 team. I, I don't know if there's a poll that's come out since uh, that, that game Saturday night and, and you and I are recording this right after the Texans game. But I, I, I know that there's still, you know, top five, top 10 in the Ken Palm rating. So, you know, what they're doing there matters more than any poll does when it comes to tournament time. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, they haven't even gotten into the conference play yet. So that's that's going to make a lot of difference, you know, too. But the the way they played teams so tough this year, I, I mean, the Wisconsin loss to me was so disappointing because they got down so early so quickly and had to fight their way back. But even then, they still put themselves in a position to win the game. And if you can continue to do that time after time and be battle-tested, that's going to help you toward the end of the season. When you're in conference play, you get in the conference tournament, you know, in the NCAA tournament time, which is really when the test is going to come. They need something more from the other guys besides Marcus Sasser. That's going to be big as the season goes along. Those guys have got to get more comfortable late in the shot clock and, and making big shots. Uh, it, it felt like it was Sasser or nothing at the end of that game. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, on other news relating to the Cougars, Kelvin Sampson's recent alums are succeeding in the NBA. We can see Armani's progress with the Rockets, and we're going to get to it. And how about Quentin Grimes? His first NBA start this weekend sets a rookie record for points with the New York Knicks with 27, seven threes for Grimes. Wow. Yeah, you love it. You love it, even if they're against other NBA teams, as long as it's not against the Rockets. But yeah, the Cougs could have used one or both of those guys last night. Armani Brooks has, has certainly been playing well for the Rockets lately. And then you got Quentin Grimes. You know, it certainly was cheering for him to do well. So, yeah, those Cougar alums, you know, Kelvin Sampson puts these guys in position to get on the NBA rosters. And they're definitely making the most of it, at least right now. Armani looks so much better when he's not shooting the ball for three than he did last year than he did earlier this year we're seeing the progress Stephen, of a guy that is a multi-dimensional player and that's what he has to be you cannot be a one-dimensional guy i got into a semi-argument on twitter with somebody about hey you know he was saying this is this is what the rockets would have needed with james harden a guy that could just knock down threes and look armani's still not shooting 40, 45% from three yet. He's still mid-30s, which is nothing special. And I know it's going to come and he's going to get there, but he's not there. And you just can't put out three-point shooters in the playoffs and go, hey, well, this guy, that he can shoot three, but he can't do much else. You know, Steve Novak never could find a job on a regular basis in the NBA. The Rockets had Troy Daniels. I mean, these were guys that Daryl Morey brought in, but they could shoot and then there was nothing else. Well, and the problem is, is the shots aren't falling and they don't have anything else to fall back on, then you're sunk, you know, so you're absolutely right. And I know last year, I think you and I talked about at the end of last season, we were hoping that Armani Brooks would stick for this season, that we wanted to see more of him. And now we're getting to see more of him and we're starting to find out, you know, he's he's starting to evolve as a player, but he's got a little ways to go, but progress is progress. And I like what I'm seeing to this point. Since our last show, the Rockets won their seventh straight over Brooklyn, they had that win streak go up to seven. It's their longest win streak since 2019 when James Harden averaged 42 points in an eight-game streak. We remember the James Harden role. Stephen, it was nice to get a win over Harden in the first seed in the East, the Brooklyn Nets. However, 
This was definitely not the real Nets. No Joe Harris, no LaMarcus Aldridge, and more importantly, no Kevin Durant. But I will say it was impressive that the Rockets were in control the whole game. Yeah, for the most part. I mean, it, it was impressive the way they did it. But you're right. You know, they were minus some players. But hey, the Rockets have been minus some players, too. And again, I go back to the confidence factor, uh, Robert. These guys need all the confidence they can get. They're a young team. And any win is a good win for this team. I don't care if you win ugly or pretty. I don't care how shorthanded this other team is. They're still a good team, even without those guys. So the fact that you were able to do that, and it just made it that much sweeter because James Harden was in the building and he didn't come away with a victory. So you know what? It's it's all good if you're, if you're a Rockets fan right now. Harden shot 16 free throws, scored 25, but he shot poorly, and we got vintage turnover Harden along with free throw Harden with eight turnovers altogether. And if I'm being honest, it goes beyond this with James. Harden doesn't look like he has the same explosiveness. I really think James Harden might have done us a huge favor by forcing the trade last year. Yeah, and Robert, I think if, if we went back and you know, reflected on things and listened to some of our podcasts. I mean, I, I myself was kind of ready to move on from Harden as much for the drama as anything else. You know, now let's face it, the guy's still a good player, but has he, did he reach his peak with the Rockets? And again, he, he came up short where it was most important and that's in the playoffs. So sometimes, you know, you make trades and, and you look back and it, it's, it's all about timing as much as it's about personnel. And I think with James Harden right now, you have to say, Maybe the timing was good. The Rockets certainly aren't as good. But where else were they going to go with Harden on the roster? I, I just I didn't see them going any higher. So, yeah, maybe that was the right time to make a trade like that. You better make a trade like that two years too early than two years too late. We've seen in the NBA how, how crucial that is. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, and this team, as I said, is gaining confidence now. They're, they're going to try to build around some guys. And sometimes it's just what you need to do in order to uh, to get going again. Let's move to the Bucks game Friday because, Stephen, forget every win in their seven-game streak and forget any win they got last year. The Bucks game Friday night was the most impressed yours truly has been with the Rockets in the last two seasons. You know, sometimes you play a top-tier team close because they let off the gas or have an off night. The Bucks' only injury of note Brooke Lopez, and I thought the Bucks gave it everything they had. Giannis definitely did. We know that. He, <laughs> you know, threw up 41 points. And, hey, the Rockets had the lead most of the game. You know, they did. And, and I didn't get to uh, catch a lot of that game. I, well, I caught it, I think, starting in the second half. I, I tuned in as the second half began, and I was a little surprised. I'm like, man, the Rockets are in control of this game. And, you know, they've still, the Bucks. you knew they could come back, certainly. But the Rockets were in control, as you said, most of the game. You know, it looked to me, and I don't know, maybe you don't feel this way, Robert, but in the fourth quarter, it just kind of seemed like they ran out of gas. And then the Bucks, of course, were able to catch up and overtake them. But man, you, you can't say enough about the effort that the team put forth through the whole game. And I'll tell you something else. I think I'm starting to come around, Robert, and getting on your Garrison Matthews bandwagon, because certainly in the first half and part of the second half, man, he was doing some great stuff, as were some of the other guys. Oh, it was ridiculous. You missed the first half. He was coming off of screens and shooting 25-footers yep. with guys running at him. I mean, Garrison Matthews was doing Steph Curry-like stuff in the first half, and, and they were focused on him, and the Bucks are no joke defensively. 
Garrison Matthews is the real deal. And I talked about it last week, and I'll say it again. You better get him signed before it's it, it's a price that you don't want to pay for a Garrison Matthews. I, I just think he's everything that you want in a modern-day player, a guy that can shoot threes, a guy that's tough, plays defense. You know, he was on the floor uh, in the Brooklyn game when James Harden was letting the ball roll, and he jumps on the floor, gets on the ball, and I mean, forces a turnover. I mean, Garrison Matthews just makes kind of winning plays. And, and I, I can't remember if there was a turnover that he had in the Memphis game. And it, it was probably his worst game as a rocket on Saturday night. And we're going to get to the Memphis game, but this is the deal, Steven Garrison Matthews in his first 11 games playing for the Rockets. And I think I want to say all, I want to say 11 games as a starter. He had zero turnovers in 10 of those games. He just doesn't do stuff that hurts you and his defense not special, but he can cause a little problem occasionally, and he's going to take the charges, and he's just going to give you all-out effort. And he's not a small guy; he's six foot five. He's playing small forward, and he can switch off, and he can do some of those things because you know he he is that size. He's not a little guy shooting the ball. He's got some size. He's got some you know just girth and 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 just you know wider shoulders and stuff like that. So. Yeah, it's a concern for me if this goes on too long because right now he's on a two-way contract, and I think he just go goes off the roster, you know, by the end of the season if they don't sign him at some point between now and the end of the season, and I'm sure it's going to happen. But man, he's been impressive just all the way around, and the Rockets are great when he's on the floor. The plus-minus is through the roof with Garrison Matthews. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly one of the reasons that the Rockets had that winning streak and and even, you know, now that they've lost a couple in a row are, are playing so much better is the lack of turnovers. And, and I'll tell you what really jumps out at me about Garrison Matthews the more I watch him play, Robert, is, you know, kind of some of the things you mentioned is just how smart he is on the court. It's not just his shooting, but his instincts. He's, he's not what you'd call a helter-skelter type of player. The, the lack of turnovers and... Just, you know, the the taking the charges, I mean, that's something that really, I, I think, jumped out at me is his ability to be able to do that. He did that multiple times over the last few games. So, yeah, I like it more and more. You know, I was a bit hesitant at first. Like, well, I want to see a little more of a sample size from him before I'm going to say, oh, let's sign this guy for, you know, a long-term deal. But, man, the more you watch him, the more you have to say, hey, uh, this guy is one of the reasons that your team has, has like, done a total turnaround. I'm still in shock, Robert, about the way this team has played the last few games. It's it's amazing to me. The two guys that bring me such joy when I watch them with the Rockets right now are Matthews and Alperin Shangoon. And at the end of the Brooklyn game, Christian Wood said, hey, he needs to be out there more. He's averaging 17 to 18 <laughs> minutes per game. And look, I mean, you go through, there is a highlight reel now yeah. on Twitter yeah. And on YouTube, this guy has put together a highlight reel playing 17 minutes a game in just his first 25 minute, 25 games, I should say, as a rocket. And Steven, the thing is, I cannot believe that on Saturday in Memphis, okay, Eric Gordon can't play uh, on a back-to-back. He's, he's a little bit banged up, and that's the typical Eric Gordon stuff. Right. So Steven Silas goes back to... Daniel Tice, we have learned that lesson. I can't believe Steven Silas 
is still doing this stupid stuff. We watched it through a 15-game losing streak, and everything that's worked in the last seven games has been when Tice is not on the floor. You know, good for him that they did well at the end of the Oklahoma City game against a garbage Oklahoma City team with Tice on the floor. But otherwise, who cares? And he wasn't giving you anything, and he wasn't spreading the floor. And you don't have Eric Gordon out there, so you go ahead and put the the death lineup of Tice and Christian Wood and Jay Sean Tate, three guys that can't shoot. And it was just, they get off to a terrible start in Memphis and then they can never catch up. And of course, it's a second of a back-to-back. So they're going to run out of gas, even if they make a run at the end of the game towards the fourth quarter. And they were making a run, thanks to guess who? Alperin Shangoon. Get him into the game. If you're going to go with two bigs at all, which was stupid to start the game because you're worried about Steven Adams, then you don't do it with Tice. You do it with Shangoon. Put Shangoon in the game because every time he's in there, it's fun, it's exciting, and the offense is just better. He makes things happen. Occasionally, stuff goes wrong, but more often than not, far more often than not, it's incredible. Okay, so I was laughing a couple minutes ago, Robert, because he was saying the very same thing that you've been saying for weeks, that Shangoon needs to play more. And, and Robert, you and I are friends, so let's be honest with each other. I, I think you've kind of you've developed a big of a uh, man crush on Shingoon. Are you going to admit that publicly on this podcast or not? If you have not <laughs> developed a man crush on Shingoon after watching the Rockets this year, yeah, absolutely. I, I I don't know how how you even like the Rockets or like the NBA. I, he's just yeah. an unreal to watch. Yeah, I, it's, I'm, it's so I'm much kidding, fun. but I'm not kidding because honestly, I, I I'm with you. I, I've got to see more of this guy in there because when he's in there, he just makes things happen. There are just some guys that before the season, you don't know who's going to step up in a role that may surprise you. And I have to say, I mean, we we had heard some great things about Shingun and some of the things he's doing, but we're really sure. But this is the guy to me that has really stepped up among the guys that we really weren't thinking too much about, you know, and another one is Josh Christopher. I and mean, he's showing some flashes too when he's getting the chance, but Shingun. Yeah, the more you play them, the more great things that happen. So, yep, I don't know. The one thing that you got to do, though, if you go to the Shangun Christian Wood front court, is you can't have Jay Sean Tate out there. You put out three shooters with them, whether it's Augustine or Armani or Matthews or Eric Gordon. You you find three shooters to put out there with with those two guys. Then you can do it. You can't do it with Jay Sean Tate who's just not a three-point shooter. He's not effective there. Nobody guards him. It's bad, and Jay Sean Tate looked terrible against Memphis. And why did he look terrible? Because a lot of the game they were playing him with Tice and Christian Wood, and, and it's just a terrible spacing issue. And I, I just it blows my mind that Stephen Silas, after watching everything that's happened in the first few months of the season and everything that went right and went wrong, goes, we got to have Tice in there against a Memphis team that it's Stephen Adams. You're worried about Stephen Adams? What you should be doing is thinking, hey, we could take advantage of Stephen Adams if we go five out because who is he going to guard out on the three-point line? Instead, he goes, hey, let's put out Daniel Tyson. Let's clog things up and make it terrible looking. I just, that's my concern about Stephen Silas. After all this, he still hasn't learned his lesson. After all of this, he still hasn't learned a darn thing. And probably won't for the rest of the season unless he's just forced to. And you know, here's the thing. It's a shame that you can't put Tate out there with with Wood because I like all the other aspects of his game. If he was a better shooter, it'd be a no-brainer. And we might not even be having this conversation. But, yeah, you're right. It, it, Shingun has just got to play more uh, unless it's just to the point where, you know, he gets hurt 
or something else weird happens. But yeah, you got to put the guy out there for sure. I'm really glad you brought up Josh Christopher because he had a great week. I had a lot of playing time uh, with Gordon's injury, got to play a little bit more in Memphis, but also with Josh Christopher, I was wondering, okay, what's his ceiling? What, what, what to expect? And you didn't want to get overexcited about the G league. And I'm still worried about, Oh, does he have a good enough three point shot? But we've seen his three point shot look pretty good as he's getting more and more playing time. He's getting more and more comfortable with three point shot. He definitely has the body and the physicality to play defense. And it's just about him learning NBA defense and and what to do and how to do it. I think he's going to be really good at that. And he's already shown flashes that, that he is right now. Good at it. The thing with Christopher is what is he? Is he a future starter? I think worst case scenario from what I see from him is he's going to be a really good combo guard coming off the bench as a six man. But who knows? Maybe he can do more than that. I don't know if he's quite a good enough shooter or going to be quite good enough offensively to be a two guard in the in the league. And I don't know if he's quite good enough as a ball handler and somebody that can get assists to be a point guard. But I think you could put him out there with, say, Jalen Green as a one-two combination and, and, and then sharing point guard duties or ball handling duties and stuff like that as they as both of them get more comfortable uh, running an offense and, and, and as they get more time in the league. Well, right now I would peg him as a sixth man, but the good news is he's still young and still can learn a lot. And I, I have definitely seen improvement from the very beginning, even in the, the summer league when you watched him a bit and then in training camp and when the regular season started. I, I think he's definitely improving little bit by little bit as you go along. So that's the good news is I think his ceiling, you know, can be pretty high. I'd like, you know, maybe playing better defense as well as reading but defenses better. So that's the good news. But yeah, right now I would say if you're looking at the, the kind of term that he might have as a rocket, it would probably be coming off the bench as, you know, a sixth or seventh guy. Steven, put this in your back pocket. At some point we're going to have to talk about what's going to happen with Christian Wood because – to me, Shane Goon is a starting center in the NBA, and he's so good, and he's going to get much better. So put that in your back pocket. We're going to have to have that conversation because the trade deadline is going to come up in a, in a few weeks, and that's something that's going to be on the Rockets' minds is there a year and a half left with Christian Wood and his contract and you know where, where you go forward and, and what his value is and all of that. And, and, it's, and it's a really difficult thing and a really tough thing to read, but... Uh, we might as well get to the Texans, and unfortunately, <laughs> that's always a bad, a bad thing. You're putting us off as long as you possibly can, Robert, and I can put it off a little bit longer by kind of agreeing with you. I mean, I, it may be surprising to some Rockets fans about you trade Christian Wood, but look, if you're going to rebuild the way the Rockets are rebuilding, it's it's definitely something you've got to look at. So, all right, I've said my piece on that. So, let's get to the inevitable and, and get it over with. Uh, the Texans. Uh, hold your nose, and we're, we'll start <laughs> off with the big news this week that last year we saw the Texans sign Zach Cunningham to a four-year, $58 million contract. He was the second-leading tackler this year, but this week the Texans released him. Coach Kelly said, quote, we have standards. I didn't feel like those standards were being consistently met. It wasn't tough at all to waive him. It's about the team. It's not about one individual player, and Steven it was a $12 million cap hit next year, and I'd almost be willing to bet that Zach Cunningham was purposely trying to get waived so he could get out of here and take off with his easy guaranteed money. And what's easier than just pissing the Texans off? 
Well, can you blame him? I mean, you're on a team like that that you know isn't going anywhere. And uh, it's kind of interesting because, you know, a lot of head coaches don't usually come out and say, well, it was, you know, best for the team. We just need to move on. And the whole situation was weird. And, you know, for Zach Cunningham, can you imagine how much more sweet the revenge is when you find out who he ended up signing with after the Texans waived him? The Titans. Yep. Exactly. I got much better. Can it get for him than that? <laughs> and you get, you know, you get to go back with Mike Vrabel, who he's very familiar with. And the thing about Zach Cunningham, Stephen, it's been very bizarre curve to his career because it looked like he was gradually taken off as a middle linebacker early in his career. And he was doing some good things out on the football field. And you thought, man, this guy could really develop into something, a rare second-round pick that Rick Smith might have hit on. And then since then, and I feel like maybe the the downfall was the Anthony Weaver year as a defensive coordinator, but it it just seems like over the last two or three years, he's just not the same guy. And, and we don't see that. We didn't see that potential with him. And it's, he's not somebody that you go, you're going to miss. You're just you're pissed that they screwed up with this huge contract for no reason. But Zach Cunningham was somebody that was not making an impact as a linebacker. He was making a lot of tackles over the last couple of years, but I didn't feel like he was making an impact. Yeah, the move really, it, it didn't shock me, Robert. I guess it surprised me a little bit. But honestly, the, the consistency with Zach Cunningham, for me, just hadn't been there in the, in the last couple of years. He did thrive under Vrabel's defense, certainly. I think those were his best years were. But honestly... I think, you know, from the cap hit, that was the most surprising thing. But, you know, the the Texans are moving forward and it's still in a rebuilding mode. And I don't think Zach was going to, he certainly wasn't going to be liking that too much. So I think it was a lot of it on, you know, on both sides, a little bit of both. The reason that he's not here now. And now he's with the Titans. So we'll just have to see if he really does thrive under Vrabel again. You said the Texans are moving forward. If by moving forward, you mean moving backward. That's yeah. Moving forward while moving back, moving forward away from Cunningham anyway. So before we get to the game itself on Sunday, former Texan wide receiver Demarius Thomas died this week, which, you know, big news around the NFL. And that was a mid-season Brian Gain trade a few years ago. Yeah. He wasn't in Houston, but a few games. But when he was in Denver, he helped Owen Daniels win his Super Bowl. And Stephen, I saw former Texans Joel Dreesen, Daniels, and J.J. Watt tweeting about him along with Justin Reed. I don't think I knew how universally beloved he was until this happened. You know, I didn't either. And I understand uh, the, the Broncos, you know, to, we're recording this on Sunday, Robert, late in the afternoon. When the Broncos took the field today, they took the field with 10 men to honor Demarius Thomas. So what a great gesture by the Broncos. Yeah, he was very – I saw – I don't know. I lost count of how many tweets I saw. You know, the, the thing about Demarius Thomas, I mean, his NFL career may not have been spectacular, but, you know, when he was at Georgia Tech and when uh, Chan Gailey was the coach when he first got there, of course, a very pass-oriented offense, if you know Chan Gailey and the type of offense he runs, very comfortable for Demarius Thomas. Well, Chan Gailey left, Paul Johnson comes in at Georgia Tech, more of a run type of offense, yet Thomas still manages to thrive at Georgia Tech well enough to where the Broncos drafted him. I believe he was 22nd overall in the draft in 2010. So, you know, here's a guy that uh, he may have jumped around a little bit in the NFL, certainly had his best days with the Broncos, but uh, an adaptable player and just such a shock. I mean, the guy was so young. It's still kind of early of knowing, you know, they think it was some kind of a medical issue, but boy, it, it hit a lot of people hard. It certainly surprised me. 
Absolutely. And, you know, talking about 10 men taking the field for the Broncos, I feel like that sometimes when I watch the Texans offense, but they were okay (laughs) for a little bit in this game, at least, you know, the first half. And then they did their usual uh, choke job in the second half. But you get off the first drive and it's a seven play, 75 yard drive for the Texans offense, five yard touchdown pass Mills to Brevin Jordan, seven to nothing. And then you follow that that up, Stephen, on defense with the Seahawks driving down for a field goal, but rookie Garrett Wallow, who replaced Cunningham as the starting linebacker, with a big stop on third down between Garrett Wallow and Brevin Jordan and Davis Mills. The rookies looked good early in this game, and you know they, they actually made a little bit of an impact. You can throw Nico Collins in that mix, too. Yeah, you absolutely can. Of course, we've been talking about Nico for quite a while. And, you know, here's the thing about Brevin Jordan. That is his third touchdown pass this season, Robert. And you and I both know he's only been in there for several weeks. It was his third touchdown in 12 catches. The guy catches balls. That's what they need to keep throwing them. They need to keep throwing it to him. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, Wallow certainly looked good. Davis Mills comes out certainly with more confidence. And again, as we've been seeing every time he's been in there, Robert, and when he's been successful, he does better at a faster tempo. And the Texans definitely need to start scripting more plays every week to get him into that and keep him in that. Because certainly in the first half, I mean, then then looked like a totally different guy. I was trying to think, wait, is this Davis Mills or is this somebody else completing his first 14 passes? Who would have thought Davis Mills would be doing that? Hopefully Brevin Jordan also is is okay because he got banged up a little yeah, did. Uh, bit at, towards the end of the game. Texans next drive on offense. And again, if you are new to us, we just remind you that we watch the Texans and we'll take you through the game so you don't have to. And the Texans on offense, their next drive, back to the same old Texans, one first down and punt. Defensively, seven play, 97-yard drive, Rashad Penny, 32-yard touchdown run. Justin Reed, your Texans nominee for Walter Payton Man of the Year, was (laughs) not making a name for himself with his open field tackling on the Penny touchdown. So it's 10-3 Seahawks. And at that point, you thought, okay, Texans are probably just going to go away. But, Stephen, they didn't. No, they didn't. They gave up way too many of those plays. I mean, I know you'll get to it later in the game, but Penny did it again. And uh, you know, it was, it was the big runs, the big passes, really, that I, I think it certainly ate up the defense, and it certainly ate them up on that drive. Yeah, so the Texans, they, they didn't go away because 16 play, 72-yard drive. But tell me if this sounds like the Texans. Looks like they get a Cooks touchdown, but he's just short at the one-yard line. <laughs> so then Brevin Jordan, the aforementioned Brevin Jordan, is then called for an illegal formation on first down. I feel like we've seen this a lot this year. So they've got to settle for a fair barren field goal after all that. Yeah, unfortunately, those are the kind of penalties that are just showing up way too often and uh, illegal formations. I mean, this is the kind of stuff you should be working on in practice, right? Where are you, Tim Kelly? What what (laughs) are you doing in practice, man? Yeah, that's, that was my question too. It's like, how many times are you guys working on this kind of stuff? You should know where to go by now. Texans defense gets a punt at midfield, the offense three and out. And this is what really made me concerned about Davis Mill from the whole game, because you want to see a guy that is a smart, savvy quarterback that knows what he's doing under pressure. So he's on the shadow of the goal line in the final two minutes. And Mills couldn't have handled that possession much worse than he did. He cost the Texans about 10 seconds on the clock 
by not waiting to snap it on second down till the clock was about to run out. And then he went out of bounds on third down, saving the Seahawks tons of time. We're going to get to what happened with that in a second. But Steven, he just doesn't look like he's got that Peyton Manning or Tom Brady brain. Well, he doesn't. But Robert, I mean, honestly, again, this is a guy that is still trying to figure things out. He only played 11 college games and he's still so young. I I mean, I think those are the things he can figure out. He's starting to, I I think, see more of defenses and figuring stuff like that out. But, you know, it's those plays. Yeah. Scrambling out of bounds short of the first down should have slid, should have gone down and let the crock run some more. Absolutely. Those those are the plays you've got to make if you're going to be. And I'm certainly not going to put him in the Tom Brady, Peyton Manning category. But making smart plays like that certainly goes a long way. Turns out he gave the Seahawks over a minute, but the Texans didn't need a minute. They only needed five seconds to say, hey, Terrence Mitchell and Justin Reed, how about we not get beat over the top on a 55-yard touchdown? Oh, wait a second. No, we're going to get beat over the top on a 55-yard touchdown from Russell Wilson to lock it. And all of a sudden, 16 to 10 Seahawks just brain dead stuff by the Texans defense. I don't know what they were doing. Yeah. And of course against Russell Wilson, that is the last thing you want to do. Russell, he may not be the greatest Russell Wilson as he was a few years ago, but he's still Russell Wilson. And all it took is that one play 55 yards. Boom. You know, no matter that Jason Myers missed the extra point, you know, it was big then certainly, but missed another one later in the game. But that one play, uh, that it just, it breaks your heart because that could have been something the Texans could have done something with, even though the Seahawks were going to get the ball to start the third quarter. Texans, though, they don't give up in, in the first half. Uh, they get down the field. Fairbairn kicks a Texans and NRG Stadium record 61-yard field goal to end the half. And to show you my confidence in Fairbairn, Stephen, I had already made the note that he missed the field goal before he kicked it. Yeah, I was I was kind of saying, well, yeah, it'd be you know certainly would be a bonus if he makes it, but I don't think he's going to, you know. And later in the game, they were going to try him for a fifty-nine yarder. We'll get to that, but boy, I would have you know I honestly thought Robert after that in the second half they could just get that momentum and play off of that. It might be a whole different ball game than it turned out. Bill O'Brien, if you remember him, that old coach that we used to, he would have not given Fairburn the chance to kick a 61-yard field goal because uh, he just literally was an idiot. So anyway, we're going to go to the second half and and remind everybody that Mills, 16 for 21 in the first half, 175 yards passing, a touchdown, zero interceptions, zero interceptions for the game for him. We go to the second half, first, first drive on defense by the Texans, one first down and punt, but way more importantly, Stephen, the Texans MVP this year, Grugier Hill gets carted off the field on the drive, but I'm sure he'll be fine because I saw Easterby lay hands on him before he left the field. <laughs> yeah, I love the Easterby reference. Well, you know, they were saying questionable, and of course it was so early at that point. You know, it, it looked like a knee injury, and I mean, I, I almost said unfortunately that he's probably going to be the Texans MVP of the defense again because I can't really think of anybody else that really stood out because the guy – you know, he sets 19 tackles the week before on his way, probably to doing that again this game. I mean, you keep calling his name more and more and more. So, you know, the biggest thing, we just have to hope that he's not out for the rest of the season. I mean, there's only a few weeks left, certainly. And the Texans aren't going anywhere. But, man, you, you hate to see that happen to anybody. But certainly, a guy like Grugier Hill, he, he's their best defensive player, Robert, bar none. 
is there anybody else on the Texans that's overperformed like he has? I mean, everybody else that Casario signed, you, you really got mediocre play or like, oh, he's okay or that's about what I expect. But Grugier Hill like shocks everybody. Yeah with how he's played this yeah, year. Yeah, I, I would never have expected. Going into training camp, he's the last guy I would have expected to be calling his name this much and turning into the kind of player that, quite honestly, it's a bit early for that, obvious, you know, I, I know, but to say that he could be star quality on this defense. So the Texans' offense in the second half reverts to their old offense, basically. Next drive, two first downs and punt. Then they give up a field goal to the Seahawks. Then after a drive to the 42, a little bit of a drive, they, they, they look like... They were going to try a fake 59-yard field goal, but John Weeks, John Weeks of all people, gets called for an illegal procedure. The snapper. How does that happen? <laughs> yeah, as long as he's been around, he has never failed a snap, right? Ever? But he got the false start penalty. Yeah, that, that's the last person I would have expected that to happen to. So on defense, the Texans get another three and out. They're trying to hang in their offense, though. Punts at midfield. Defense all of a sudden starts to unravel because they get tired of being out there too much. And it's a 10 play 67 yard drive, one yard TD pass to Everett, which looks pretty questionable. It looked like Desmond King might've tackled him at the half yard line, but you just never expect the Texans to get a close replay call ever. Boy, doesn't it seem that way? I mean, I mean, it was kind of nip and tuck there. It just hard to tell, but yeah, once again, it, it doesn't go the Texans' way, and so here we go again. The game gets out of hand in the fourth quarter. Mills with then poor throws on third and fourth and three near midfield, and that was pretty much the ball game. Seahawks sort of wrapped it up with one more score. By the end of the game, Royce Freeman was the only Texans running back. He was a Broncos third-round pick three years ago, just so you know who Royce Freeman is, and was playing for the Panthers this year until – the last three weeks. What amazes me, Stephen, is in the last few years, the Texans cannot find any running back that gets you excited, that gets you excited at all about, oh, this guy's got a little juice. Maybe he gets into the open field and breaks one. It's just a bunch of guys. And of course, you know, you bring in, you know, expatriates that are just Look, you found you could say, "Oh, you got to draft the guy." No, you don't, because Arian Foster wasn't drafted. And look at him. Well, that's right. I mean, I remember, you know, when I first started following football, running backs were taken first, second, third overall picks in the draft. I mean, you know, look at the Oilers and Earl Campbell and the Cowboys with Tony Dorsett. You know, these guys were up near the and now, you you can find a good running back in the third, fifth, sixth round, or even you know a free agent running back. It, it's a totally different game. And yeah, these are bargain bin guys, Robert, but wouldn't you think that somebody, one of them, would step up and show some flashes like, hey, this guy might actually be somebody for a couple years, you know, especially when the running game is what it is. And, you know, you talk about the, I mean, the, the, there was injuries at the worst possible positions for the Texans. You know, with Grugier Hill, you had him out when you were already thin at, at linebacker and Justin Reed going into concussion protocol. You know, the same with Desmond King. Davion Davis, you were short on wide receivers. And even Burkhead, you know, we're talking about the running backs. He goes out near the end of the game with a groin injury. So the injuries were piling up at the, just the worst possible positions today. Yeah, Burkhead, uh, I didn't say his name out loud, but that's the expatriate that I'm talking. He had 11 carries, 40 yards before he left the game. Royce Freeman, 11 carries, 15 yards, 1.4 yards per carry. You didn't get much in the running game, as usual. 
So we get to the offensive MVP, Stephen, and it's basically between two guys. Davis Mills, 33 for 49, 331 yards, one touchdown, no interceptions, solid game, not a great second half, of course. And then the other guy that, you know, seems to be in the conversation, if there is another guy in the conversation on any any given week, Brandon Cooks, eight eight catches, 101 yards. You could throw in Brevin Jordan, I guess, because he did catch the touchdown, but just four catches for 26 yards on the game. Who's your MVP? I'm going to give it to Mills, Robert. I just felt like, you know, at least you've got to take what little bit you can with him. The way he came out in the first half, it just it looked like a totally different quarterback. Yeah, he started missing passes in the second half, and obviously he needs to learn how to put a full game together. And made some maybe not smart decisions, like not slide, uh, going uh, sliding and not going out of bounds. But that's the kind of thing that I think you can learn. I'm just I got to go when it was my MVP. He just looked so much more in control, at least for part of the game. The offensive line looked better than it has at times in this game, and I don't know how much of that is the Seahawks. Titus Howard gets. More run at left tackle. He has looked pretty good at left tackle. He had one penalty. It was nitpicky. There was a lot of nitpicky penalties. Boy, there were. Yeah, there were. And the thing with Titus Howard is, if he continues to look good at left tackle, Stephen, Laramie Tunsil could go on the block in the offseason. Well, it wouldn't be surprising. You know, he's certainly getting paid a lot. I mean, that's the thing. You know, but and there are certainly other teams, like the Texans were, you know, in that position a couple of years ago, where you really, really need a left tackle. You might have to overpay for him. So... Yeah, if Howard can keep that up, and you and I have talked about the fact that he needs to be a tackle more than guard, so we just we just need to see a bigger sample size before I, I think I'm ready to say that. But yeah, it's certainly on the way to it. I don't know if Laramie Tunsil's one of the Texans character guys. I don't consider him that much of a character guy, so that's another reason why he might be out there. But he could net you at least a first-round pick, I would think. Uh, it might be a low first-round pick. You're not getting back the you know, mother load that Bill O'Brien gave him up for, but we know, we know that wasn't going to happen. So yeah, it, it's very, very possible, Stephen, that, that he's gone. Yeah. I'd say, I, I don't know. I tend to say maybe second or third round, you know, just with his contract, but you never know. I, I mean, maybe Nick Osario can wheel and deal like he has been. <laughs> maybe he could pull off something like that. He's still one of the best left tackles in, in the NFL. Oh, absolutely. Uh, on defense, the MVP, would be, I think, between, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Christian Kirksey and the aforementioned Grugier Hill, even though he went out early in the third quarter. Well, but that's just the thing. The kind of impact he has, Robert, I mean, is as many tackles as he made by that point. But you know what? We could give it to Grugier Hill every week when he's in there. So I think I'm going to give it to Kirksey this time. As I said, I think on the last podcast, we may just have to name the award after Grugier Hill and just take him out of nominations because he just does this week after week after week. You just hope he can get back in there sooner rather than later from the injury. Yeah, he was carted off. It was non-contact. No. I don't think we're going to see him again. So I'm going to go ahead and get, give mine to Grugier Hill because he had six tackles. Five were solo. Uh, Kirksey had 10 tackles, five solo. But Grugier Hill had two tackles for loss and one pass defense. So he was doing a little bit of everything like he's been doing the entire season and boy, he's going to be badly missed in a defense that really doesn't give you much else to look at. And also uh, the other part about the Texans defense, usually this year they've picked up a turnover or two. That was one of the things that they just couldn't get done. And and maybe that helps change the game a little bit. Yeah. I mean, the Texans, they didn't create, they didn't have any turnovers, but yeah, you're right. I was going to say earlier, they didn't create any either. And that's been something it's made the difference in, 
some of the close games the Texans have been in this year. But, you know, you've got to start somewhere. They've certainly been better at it this year than they were in the past couple of years. Not sure we can close out the show without talking about the loss of a Texas sports journalism legend. And this is sticking with football because at age 96, Dave Campbell passed away. And Stephen, I I know you're a sports writer. Um, You know this guy, I'm sure, very well. And and he's just, uh, Dave Campbell is, he is Texas football, especially I think for the high school guys. Oh, absolutely, Robert. This guy, look, he created what is now a booming business with Texas Football Magazine. I mean, it started out, I think it was like a a 70-page magazine decades ago. And yeah, it is very much known for high school. I mean, that's that's really, to me, I think the go-to, if you want to find out the great high school players and, you know, what their potential is for, for college, that that is it's really the Bible of high school football in Texas. And it has just exploded into so many different things. I mean, they even have that, I think, a, a streaming service. They, of course, have the uh, digital version of the magazine that comes out more than just once a year, certainly, you know, with updates. But let me tell you something else about Dave Campbell, Robert, that you may or may not know. This goes to show you the kind of sway that Dave Campbell has. He was able to talk a head football coach at a major university out of taking another job. Can you believe that? I'm talking about Grant Taft. You probably remember who Grant Taft is. He was the head coach at Baylor for many years, won some Southwest Conference football titles. I want to say it was in 86. It was in the mid-80s anyway. And Grant Taft was being courted by USC, of all people, and of all schools. And Grant Taft wasn't sure he was going to take the job. Guess who he turned to for advice about whether he should leave Baylor or not? None other than Dave Campbell. And it was Dave Campbell who convinced Grant Taft to stay at Baylor and not take the USC job. Robert, how many journalists do you know that, A, a head coach of a major football school would come to for advice about another job and B would be able to convince him to stay. I tell you what though, if I'm Grant Taft, what do you expect him to say? He's been at Baylor or or in that area covering football for 40 plus years. Of course he's going to stay, stay. Well, that's right. And yeah. And and of course the people that don't know Dave Campbell or Baylor, a Baylor alum, you know, was uh, the sports editor for the Waco Herald Tribune for years and years and years. So certainly well known in that area, but still, It's quite a story, and it just goes to show you the kind of influence Dave Campbell had, not just in journalism, but through all of college football in this area, even, you know, when head coaches would come to him for advice. My connection with them over the last year, I've been shooting some high school football games over the last, you know, well, during this entire high school football season for Dave Campbell's high school football show that's on Valley Sports Southwest, so... You know, I've got a little bit of a connection that way. Uh, the Chronicles' John McClain called Campbell his inspiration and role model. McClain got his start as a journalist back in 1973 when Campbell hired him. He said, quote, the first time Dave Campbell asked me to write a story for Texas football, I was floored. He wanted me to write about a high school linebacker who had moved to running back as a senior. He said he heard this kid had a chance to be pretty special told me his name was Campbell no relation just Earl oh man (laughs) yeah you know one of the things I always heard Robert as you said I am a sports writer so I've been in the business for a long time 
one of the things I heard about Dave Campbell, and I heard it recently after his passing, is just the, the way he treated writers, you know, from one generation to the next, and, and how he got so many like John McClain their start, and how, you know, they, they were his employees, but he actually became friends with so many of the writers, you know, and that this was just an upstanding guy, period. And he sold the magazine quite a while back in the 80s, but his name was still on it. He was still the editor for many, many years of Texas football, even though he no longer owned it. Of course, he started it, ended up selling it, but his name, his imprint was still on it years after, and it still will be even long after his passing. The Chronicle's Jerome Solomon said, quote, when I introduced myself and Dave Campbell said, I know who you are, you're good. Wow. I was floored. Being asked to write articles for Texas football will always be a career highlight, unquote. And Robert Griffin, uh, RG3, said, quote, Dave Campbell impacted more lives than he could ever imagine. High school kids all over the state of Texas were discovered and recruited because of his magazine. He gave his time to kids from small towns like myself and gave us a stage to be seen. Well, yeah, again, I mean, just the, the guy was more than a sports writer, more than a journalist, and even more than a businessman. Because he, as I said, he created a full, a whole business out of this whole thing. And in the right way, you know, there's a lot of recruiting services that been kind of shady, Robert, because I've dealt with some of them. Nothing shady about Dave Campbell. I mean, this is just such a, you know, a sad story. I, I hate that we're ending the show on this, but certainly what a, a tribute to a great guy. Yeah, and it, it's not a sad story. He lived till age 96, and this was not just a jur great journalist. He was not just, you know, everything that you said, but he was a World War II hero, fought yep. in France and Germany. His armored division actually pushed across the Rhine River into Germany. He earned a bronze star for that. And I wasn't aware of this story, but when he was seven, his father ruptured an artery and died on Christmas Eve, which is almost unfathomable for a seven-year-old boy. Ooh. Christmas Eve, I mean, especially this time of year, I think about it and it's like, oh, wow, I, I, I did not know any of that. Yeah, I must admit, I did not heard that story. I think he attended his first football game when he was five and developed an interest. And he was, a, I think, a, a cub reporter at a young age, too. So, you know, it, it was just so many, many years of service that he gave to his country, to his profession. And again, as we said, just an all-around nice guy was Dave Campbell. He wasn't, there, there was nothing haughty about him. Another guy that we lost this week that changed his entire industry, Al Unser, four-time Indy 500 winner, one of only four people to ever win Indy four times. Between him, his brother Bobby, and his son, they won nine Indies combined. Unser still holds the record for the most laps led in the Indy 500 and is the oldest to ever win the 500 at age 47. He also finished fourth a couple of times at the Daytona 500 back in the late 60s. Mario Andretti said, Unser was, quote, one of the top five racers who has ever lived and the kindest, calmest, smartest, toughest, most fun, well-liked guy ever. Well, he would certainly know. And, you know, when you, when you talk about great racers, like him and uh, A.J. Foyt and Richard Petty and those guys, you got to put Al Unser in that conversation, uh, and certainly along with Bobby and Al Unser Jr., certainly. Yeah, just uh, a couple of huge losses. Um, I mean, just there were some other big losses this week. We lost another one of the monkeys. There is one left, Michael Nesmith, mm -hmm. now gone, and we also lost the great author Anne Rice. Just uh, it, it was a tough week between 
all of them. And we mentioned Demarius Thomas earlier in the show. But, uh, you know, the the good news as far as Houston sports is concerned is that hopefully uh, this Rockets thing will continue because none of it looks like an accident, even with the two losses. Like I said, Steven Silas, if he's going to be dumb <laughs> and keep starting Daniel Tice, yeah, they're going to go back to being the 15 straight loss Houston Rockets. But as long as these guys are going to go out there and play like they've been playing, uh, sans Daniel Tice, then, you know, it, 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 this should continue because these guys are, I think will continue to get better. Hopefully we're going to see more of uh Shangun. And also, you know, my hope is that sometime soon we're going to get to see Jalen Green come back because I think Jalen Green in the same way that Davis Mills looked a little bit better after he came back from, you know, not playing for a few games as a rookie in the same way, Steven, that, We've seen Kevin Porter Jr. come back and look pretty good after his injury and missing a few games. I, I think the same thing can happen to Jalen Green, but they got to get that hamstring right because if you're going to bring him back, you want him to bring him to be brought back for good and not be doing this endless cycle, you know, this Will Fuller cycle where he goes out every few games. Yeah, absolutely. I would rather they keep him out too long than bring him back too soon. And, you know, here's the thing, Robert, you never want to see a player get injured, but sometimes, especially with a young player, and, and I've talked to a lot of college athletes, high school athletes that have had this very perspective. Sometimes an injury can be a blessing in disguise because it allows you to sit back and look at the game in a totally different way. You're looking at it from the sidelines. And if you if you allow yourself to observe what's going on, you know, not just your teammates, but your opponents, what they're doing, when you get back in, sometimes you can have a totally different perspective. And if your head changes, then chances are you're going to play better. I just recently talked with a, a women's college basketball player and had the same thing, had an injury a couple of years ago, missed the whole season in her freshman year, came back, had a much better grasp of the game. So you're hoping that can happen with guys like Jalen Green and Kevin Porter Jr. Next week, you and I, we have got to talk a little bit about what Houston sports fan wants from Santa this year. Because Christmas is right around the corner, Stephen. We have one more big show, at least big show, between the two of us with the Texans game and everything else that's going on. One more before we're there. It, it, it's it's Santa Claus. Time. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, of course, I'm going to be out at the end of the year, so that it'll be our last chance to talk about it as far as Christmas goes. So I will get to that. I mean, I've been thinking about it kind of, Robert, but you know, now, now that you've put it out there publicly, uh, we both will come back armed with uh, hopefully what will be some presents that we will receive from Santa regarding Houston sports in the next couple of weeks. Lots and lots of good stuff in this show. And we're looking forward to some more competitive games from the Rockets in the next week. Uh, again, uh, we lost some people. Michael Nesmith, I forgot to mention, he's a Houston guy, native Houstonian. That's right. might, people might not know that. His mother invented liquid paper. I always forget that part of his story. He was the guy that inspired MTV, some of his videos. So not just the monkeys, but so much about his life is incredibly interesting. So huge loss. Seems like a, a great guy from everything that you've heard. Like everybody, Dave Campbell, so many of these guys that we've lost. Uh, Unser as well. Um, just uh, another fun week in Houston sports outside of some a little sadness, but uh, you know, a couple of these guys lived a very long and, and fantastic life. Uh, until we talk to you guys the next time, you know what you got to do. You got to light the fuse. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk.
Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.